welcome to What Divines Us. I'm Rabbi Abram Goodstein. Now, Pastor Matt Schultz and I had an episode ready to go. It was polished, it was produced, and we were ready to publish it on our uh, on our podcast. But uh, when we saw how there was this leaked memo overturning Roe versus Wade from the Supreme Court, we decided to postpone this particular that particular episode and focus instead on a new episode that would cover this issue. And I just, uh, unfortunately, Pastor Matt Schultz couldn't join me for this one, but we, I just wanted to offer you sort of the Jewish perspective on when, it, um, when life begins. So in Judaism, we really, we really take uh, our, our understanding of when life begins from the Torah, our Bible. And uh, in Genesis 2-7, I believe it lays it out for us quite nicely. It says, God formed a person from the dust of the earth, and God blew into the nostrils the breath of life. And humanity became a living being. So in Judaism, our belief is that life starts with breath, and life does not start at conception. And so we uh, very much believe in a woman's choice to choose, and we very much believe that every person should leave these kinds of uh, situations between them and their doctor. That's sort, of the, that's sort of the Jewish way of thinking about this. Uh, so I was pretty shocked when we saw that there was this leaked a memo or brief about the Supreme Court looking to overturn Roe versus Wade. And uh, Pastor Matt Schultz and I really wanted uh, to just discuss this component of it. So what I did is we brought in two guest hosts who are going to help us understand what this means uh, to have Roe versus Wade overturned for the country and for Alaska specifically. So I have our guest speakers on right now. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to our special edition of What Divines Us. I'm Rabbi Abram Goodstein. And while unfortunately uh, Pastor Matt Schultz couldn't join us, I'm very lucky to have two guest hosts for the podcast. Uh, With me is Rose, who's the Alaska State Director of the Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocate, and Ashley, who has loads of experience uh, in public health. Uh, So I'm going to let them also introduce themselves. So hi, Rose, and hi, Ashley, and, and welcome to What Divines Us. Hello, welcome. Thank you for having us. And and so what we're going to do for this special episode is talk a little bit about what's going on right now in the news. Uh, I'm going to ask you two some some questions. Um, I really pref- I really prefer to have to hear from your voices. If you know my voice, I feel like it gets a little bit mansplainy, and I don't want to go that direction. Uh, so I, I would I would love to hear sort of like your take on what's happening. Um, but before we do that, I just I want to know Rose, for example, like how did you get into Planned Parenthood in the first place? That is a great question. Um, So my background is actually in education. Uh, I was a kindergarten teacher, uh, an early childhood teacher for over 15 years, Um, first starting in Florida and then in Brooklyn, New York. I specialized in inclusion and helped to build curriculum uh, that looked at education and teaching and learning through a social justice lens, starting from kindergarten all the way up through middle school. I had two brothers who lived in uh, the Cantwell area. They came, um, I came to visit them, pretty classic story, fell in love and decided to stay in Alaska. Um, I was working part-time construction, decompressing in Cantwell uh, when the job of uh, Fairbanks organizer for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates opened in Fairbanks and 
the foreman, my boss, uh, encouraged me to apply. And so I, um, it seems a little off, but it's actually the same. I've always advocated for children and families. And now in my job, I still advocate for children and families just in a different way and a different part of that process of them having healthy, happy lives um, and have moved up from organizer to manager to now state director. Wow. That's a story. Thanks for sharing that, Rose. And, and Ashley, so what brought you sort of into public health? Um, yeah, so I, um, I had quite a bit of different types of experience, both in clinical medicine and public health and kind of all facets of, of health care. Um, in high school and in college. And uh, my senior year of college, I ended up kind of tripping into, we had to do a senior internship. Um, and I, I ended up kind of tripping into this um, really, really cool opportunity where I was interning under a, um, a physician turned public health um, professional at the Institute of Medicine. I, I went to college in DC. And so I spent a semester shadowing him, working with him, doing research with him. And it was really, really eye-opening. It was fascinating. I Before that, I didn't really know what public health was. Um, come to find out, I'd actually been interested in it for many years. I just hadn't really known that it was a thing. Um, and so I got um, really enamored with public health and realizing that, you know, you can impact the the lives of, of entire populations and communities um, through through the work that you do in public health. And so I continued to pursue that through um, the rest of college and then um, ended up pursuing a master's in public health and, and now going on to a doctorate in public health. And um, over the years, I've worked in so many different ways in public health. Um, I've, I've worked internationally. I've worked domestically. Um, I've done research. I've done um, teaching master's of public health students, which was a really cool opportunity. Um and, and now working back here, back home here in Alaska, I was born and raised here, uh, as you know, Rabbi, <laughs> we grew up together. Um, and so I was really excited to be able to come back home to Alaska um, and, and, and loving working in public health here, serving, serving my own community that I grew up in. Um, yeah. All right. So I just have a couple of, I just have some questions I want to ask you so we can kind of, so you can help us sort of navigate about what's going on at the moment. Uh, and so my my first my first question is is why is Roe versus Wade so vital for reproductive rights? Um, yeah, so Roe v. Wade is the Supreme Court case that established abortion as a constitutional right in the United States, and it's the case that's protected us against abortion bans across the country for nearly fifty years. Um, so, right as anti-abortion legislators across the country have tried to pass like draconian abortion bans. They've been struck down by the Supreme Court because of the legal precedent set by Roe v. Wade. So it's it's the stopgap. It's it's saying that it's a constitutional right is why the court case is so important. Um, and we can talk later, and maybe Ashley can talk to, but why is abortion access so important? Um, you know, and that's because it guarantees the right for people to have autonomy and privacy over their own medical decisions that affect, you know, not only the rest of their lives, but directly affect their families and communities' lives as well. So Roe v. Wade doesn't really affect accessibility? Is that what you're saying? Uh, Roe v. Wade is the legal right to have that access. Um, And so since it's a federal Supreme Court has upheld that right, 
when states have tried to enact individual laws to either completely ban abortion or chip away at that access, the Supreme Court has continually said, legally, you cannot do that. Right. Um, and then, you know, I've seen a lot, it's something I don't really know very much about, and so I imagine not everyone knows about it too, is this, is this other one, uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, and I was hoping maybe you could also talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so Planned Parenthood v. Casey uh, was in 1992, and it reaffirmed a constitutional right to abortion. But that ruling also confirmed that pregnant people have a right under the Constitution. Um, like, there were other restrictions that existed in between Roe and Casey. And Casey, Casey basically said that these restrictions, like needing your husband's permission, um, right, needing parental consent, needing certain standards uh, that it was medically necessary, uh, were an undue burden. And so it took away a lot of the unjust hoops that people that could get pregnant needed to jump through in order to access an abortion, right? So, for example, um, if you're in a unsafe marriage or unsafe relationship, um, you know, contraceptive coercion, you know, like there's so much coercion that happens around getting pregnant, being pregnant um, as part of abusive and unsafe relationships. And so requiring a husband um, to sign off on an abortion, you know, would just further potentially put someone in one of those situations in harm. So in addition to it just sounding ludicrous to us in 2022 that you would need your husband's permission, um, there are really direct safety concerns um, that need to be addressed in, in needing someone's permission, even a doctor's permission. Um, you know, to make a decision that's right for you and your body. And so Planned Parenthood v. Casey really expanded what it truly means to have access. Um, And we still need to be expanding. There's still so many reasons why people might have legal access and do not have true access to abortion. Um, But uh, the Casey case really took away a lot of those undue burdens. So, so, okay, so back to accessibility then. So it sounds like you're telling me that Casey really improved accessibility uh, to abortions. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then, so then, so then the real question is, so then what does this leaked draft opinion mean uh, for Roe and Casey? Well, it's not great. I want to emphasize that abortion is still safe and legal, not only in Alaska, but across the country. It is only a draft opinion. Um. But we do know from this draft opinion that, you know, the intention of at least one member of the court is to completely strip away um, federal legal access to abortion and give it back to the states, which would also mean that more than half the states would immediately lose access to abortion. And, you know, if you look at Kentucky, Texas, Idaho, you know, there already are places where ostensibly abortion has become unobtainable and illegal and we will just see that continue to happen across the country this is something called trigger trigger laws right like there's an idea there's a there's this process in place where as soon as roe v wade is struck down trigger laws will go into effect in i think like 28 states is that does that sound correct to you i know the Guttenmeyer Institute, I believe it's 26, but also we know that like there are legislators coming back into special session because of this leaked draft 
in order to make sure their state has a trigger law on the books. Um, and I don't know, Ashley, if you want to speak more to that. Um, yeah, I don't, I can't speak to the exact number. Um, cause like you said, it, there, there are some things changing right now. Um, I read something recently, I think yesterday saying that, um, 13 states have, have recently passed trigger laws. Um, and so basically the, the goal of this is, um, these states want to say that the moment, the moment the federal government does not require us to allow this, our laws immediately refer, revert back to what it was before, um, uh, before Roe passed. And so they wouldn't even have to have a special session. They wouldn't have to bring anyone forward. They wouldn't have to pass anything. They wouldn't have to discuss anything. It would just immediately, the moment that's passed, um, basically rewind the clock several decades. That sounds brutal. I, I was just to, to add a little tidbit, you know, from, from a more like public health standpoint, um, this, this issue of having access to safe abortions where you don't have to do them, um, you know, unsafely in someone's, um, I mean, you know, the term back alley abortion is something that we hear, but it's, it's a term because it's happened, um, unfortunately. And people who um, desperately need services, desperately need this medical care, um, they find, many of them will find ways to get this done, whether or not it's safe, whether or not they, it, it's sanitary, or whether or not they have the right medications or the right tools or things like that. Um, and what that ends up causing is a lot of deaths. Um, you know, a, a lot of moms who have kids at home will not be making it home to their kids. A lot of um, a, a lot of kids won't be making it home to their moms, too. Um, we also, uh, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of abortions also that are life-saving procedures. Um, and, you know, there were cases, there have been cases around the world in recent years. I think one of the ones that got the most, like a significant amount of international attention was one in, um, I think it was Ireland. Uh, um but her case got quite a bit of attention. It happened in 2012, I believe. And um, she ended up dying from not being able to receive medical care, not being able to receive um, the uh, abortive services that she needed um, when she was septic. She basically went into septic shock. Um, and the medical providers there were not able to save her. And she would have easily been saved uh, had she been able to get the care that she needed. And so these, you know, having access to these types of, of services really are life-saving procedures. They truly are public health issues. Um, and I, so just as, as a tiny aside, um, one of the reasons why I got involved with Planned Parenthood specifically and abortion rights specifically came out of my experience when I, at, right after I graduated from my master's degree, I worked at Children's National. Um, so when I, when I was working in, um, uh, at Children's National Medical Center in DC, I was working with a group that, uh, worked with very high risk pregnancies, very high risk pregnant women. Um, it was fetal and transitional medicine. And we saw some really, really devastating cases where, you know, it was very clear that, um, going this route was not something that people had in their mind. It wasn't, it wasn't their plan. Um, but it's, it's care that was necessary and, um, you know, not having access to this can really be, um, um, 
a, just a significant impact on people's lives and their health um, and the lives and health of their, their families and their children. It seems such a cruel thing to do uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, it's also an issue of control. Oh, oh, can you, oh, could you go down that road a little bit? <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm sure Rose has some thoughts on this as well. I mean, um, really, when it gets down to it, this this is issues. So much of this, I think, um, stems from having control over certain subsets of our population in this context, specifically women, um, you know, having control over um, uh, over what they are able to do and how they are able to live their lives um, from a certain subset of the population who thinks that they know better. That's hard to hear. <laughs> and I, I think that a lot of it also, in at least in my experience, from what I've seen, a lot of people who um, are in favor of passing these types of restrictive laws typically are coming from a perspective of really not understanding the full picture, not understanding um, like the, the deep, deep impact that this has. They don't understand that this is not a black and white issue. This is not just an issue of... Um, you know, the, the narrative that we hear so often is irresponsible women using this as birth control when that's such a small, small subset of the population um, that, that, you know, need these services. But that's the narrative that's put out there. And I think one of the things that's really challenging is um, helping people who are in favor of restrictive um, laws understand that this is not black and white, that there is so much complexity. There's so much gray area. Um, it's, it's just such a complex issue. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we can't have these types of black and white laws. In Rome, you want yeah. To yeah. Yeah. To build off of that, you know, like, I think it's really important to note that these bans impact marginalized communities who already face barriers to healthcare the most, right? So black, Latino, indigenous, other people of color disproportionately feel the impacts of abortion bans and restrictions because this is the product of our country's legacy of racism and discrimination. And so you have, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's true, you know, thinking of intersectionality, right? And so we might all experience these systems of oppression differently, but they are the same systems bearing down on us, right? The patriarchy, capitalism, and so when you are existing in a space where because of systemic racism, like you are, you know, working an hourly job, you know, with like lower wages because our federal minimum wage is not a living wage. Right. And then you have all of these things, you know, now you live in a rural location. And so there are not health care centers in your location. And so we have this idea of legal access, but we do not have equal access not only to abortion care, but to things like birth control in the state of Alaska. Like right now, if you live in rural Alaska, your insurance company can make you fly every month to a community with a pharmacy to pick up oral contraception. Like we have all of these barriers that are impacting people disproportionately and on top of each other, creating a system, you know, where now we're, we're about to lose legal access and that's going to impact everyone but it's going to disproportionately impact people who are generally the people who we should be offering the most support and resources to. 
this, yeah, I mean, ugh, I, like it's, it's just it's cruel all the way down. And I, you know, I, you mentioned actually the sense of this need for control, which I just I find very fascinating. W- w- if you two could maybe speak on where you think this need for control even comes from. I think about this a lot. Um, uh, well, right. So, you know, in order for the systems that we have right now to work, right, in order for a few people to stay in power, you know, that requirement is is to have people that are, you know, willing to work and live, you know, under these systems that help them gain wealth and power. Um, you know, and and I think. It's, it's a part of uh, abortion access that I don't hear talked about a lot. But, you know, inside of this idea of not being offered health care, of not being offered options, is then a, a fear of sex and love, right? And we're, we just had two generations, you know, who had, you know, maybe not equal access, but legal access um, to make decisions over their own body to where then they felt free to like build the relationships and the families that felt good for them, you know, and, and now inherent in these changing of these laws is then right. Like without sex ed, right. Without teaching, you know, an entire generation in Alaska, like how to talk about and care for their bodies and love each other with respect and kindness and boundaries. Like ultimately what we are doing is stripping away what it, is to be human, right? To build the loving relationships that are meaningful for you in a way that's also safe for you. And so now we're adding a layer of fear with this idea of forced pregnancy, you know, and how that ultimately changes how you feel like you can love and be in relationships. And so, I don't know, it makes me really sad, you know, that we're taking away something essential about being human. From an entire generation. Yeah, that does bum me out. I think that's so that's so eloquently put, <laughs> Rose. I, I love the way you worded that. Um, I I was gonna go a different direction with that, but I love that. What what my uh, my first thing I was gonna say was, I think it's um, a, a certain subset of our leadership in our country who are I think afraid of of losing their power and their kind of reign over our country. Um, And I I think that we're seeing their attempts at keeping control over the politics and the leadership positions. Um, They're, you know, we're seeing their, their fear come out in the way that they are changing voter laws, changing voter boundaries, districts, gerrymandering, um, it, you know, the policies that they're passing to keep certain people in power and certain groups in power. Um, I don't think that these are the types of actions that are taken by a group that feels confident and comfortable in the way that they are leading. I think these are the types of things that you see done by people who um, I think maybe will, whether or not they're willing to admit it <laughs> is a questionable thing. But I think on one level, they know that um their, their time is limited and people are hopefully eventually going to see through it and they, they're trying to keep power. Um, I think the scary thing, though, is that it's impacting generations of people. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of ways where we are we're changing education, which impacts generations of people who are growing up not, not knowing um, how they can impact civics in their country and how they can impact policies and not fully understanding the the impacts that policies have on their lives. 
um, I think I think for many people, um, they see these types of policies, you know, pertaining to something as as specific and targeted as abortion rights. They see it as something that doesn't impact them. It's something that only well that doesn't concern me. I, I'm not having abortions. That only concerns other people. Um, but I think this really has, these types of things have impact on many more people than I think, um, than many of us realize. Yeah, and really what struck, what struck me, especially in the national conversation that's occurred in the last, I think, year, is the hypocrisy of the vaccine for COVID, where you, you see conservative pundits say, you know, this is between you and your doctor. And then when it comes to access to abortion, suddenly it's not between you and your doctor anymore. And that really frustrates me to hear that kind of that that difference, that hypocrisy. I have laughed about that a lot, mostly laughing because I don't know what else to do. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And in the debate against sex ed, you know, people showing up with their kids holding signs saying my body, my choice against sex ed. It's it is. Yeah, I agree with you, actually, (laughs) just like mind-boggling yeah actually i have a little story there i I, i'm in high school i grew up i grew up you know in uh, at anchorage and i was part of a group called rarity reducing aids risk in teens it was called uh and it was tightly controlled i could not i could not show condoms to classes and i and i I had to say um abstinence is 100 percent effective i had to say that i had to say it it was and uh, and to this day i kind of like i'm a little grossed out because i feel like i I was doing this you know because i believe in this stuff but like i was also in some ways also presenting sort of a very conservative view of what sex ed should be and i I don't know i still feel weird about it uh but at the time i I felt pretty good that i was like teaching sex ed to kids and or to kids my age well, I will absolve you, Rabbi, because that is factually true. The only way to make sure that you do not, uh, you know, if you can get pregnant or get an STI is abstinence. And we still say that at Planned Parenthood because it is a fact. But it is not generally the reality that most humans choose. And so we need to make sure that we're giving accurate information so that people can stay safe. You know, and because also there's this idea that the heart and the brain don't need to be cared for you know like this idea of just making sex out about bodies you know it's also about consent and giving and hearing a no and a yes and knowing what that no and yes means because someone has explained it to you and Ashley probably has many more stories but we hear all the time where people are like I had sex before I was ready because I didn't know I was having sex because no one told me what sex was brutal that's brutal to hear oof If we just want to go with really concrete facts, yes, abstinence works, but abstinence education does not. (laughs) Um, I mean, the the data shows us that abstinence-only education um, has some of the lowest success rates at at reducing teen pregnancies. Um, Actually, in in I. Um, Rose, you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong on this one. I, um, I feel like I know a lot of facts, but forget the details. So <laughs> I think it's Colorado that a few years ago started uh, subsidizing or providing at no cost um, birth control and um, possibly IUDs. I don't remember the details of this one, but they saw this dramatic, dramatic decrease in teen pregnancy rates. And we see, you know, data like that from from so many different ways and so many different contexts where 
more access to reliable and and factual and appropriate education and healthcare is is how we decrease abortions and decrease unwanted pregnancies, um, not reducing access. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's the absence only. It doesn't take into consideration the human condition. Uh, and I appreciate that comment, Ashley. How absence education is actually not effective. Uh, but the, I, I, I want to now like drive the conversation to more statewide because I right now, uh, well, at least in this election season, there is constitutional convention that's going to be opened up or, or voted to be opened up in November, and this is related, I, I believe, to the overturning of Roe versus Roe v. Wade as well. Uh, and 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 Rose, do you know anything a, a, about this? Um. Yeah. So uh, for people listening a constitutional convention is when alaska became a state and wrote their state constitution they wrote in there that every 10 years it would go back on the ballot and voters would get to decide if they wanted to open it back up and change it so we are at that 10-year mark as rose being overturned uh not orchestrated just coincidence lovely universal (laughs) yes and so you know Basically, the voters will get to decide, like, do we keep the Constitution as it is or do we open it? And when we say open it, we mean open it. Like the entirety of the document can be taken away and an entire new one can be brought in. Um, It opens it up for an infinite number of changes for a lot of things that Alaskans are usually really proud of when they talk about their Constitution. You know, and we know... uh, Because in Alaska, we have the legal right to abortion access through our state constitution in addition to the federal. So federally, when Roe v. Wade is overturned, it will not immediately impact access in Alaska because of our state constitution. They've continually passed laws in the state legislature that our Supreme Court have overturned time and time again because of our constitutional protection. And right now there's a constitutional amendment in the legislature to remove that. So we know absolutely that there are people in the state of Alaska using everything at their disposal to limit or outright ban abortion access in Alaska. Um, And I don't know if Ashley wants to speak more to that. Um, No, I I think that was really well put. I think it's, um, I think we just, we can't get too comfortable. (laughs) Um, We we don't really know what to expect. I think a, a lot of A lot of folks who are in favor of having a constitutional convention are um, claiming that it has to do with the PFD, Um, but I just, I I don't think that that's the real reason. (laughs) Um, I do think it'll be really messy if we actually do decide to open it up. I think for many reasons, not only abortion, but for many, many reasons, I think it'll get really messy. So I think it's, um, I don't know, only time will tell. It'll be interesting to see where where it goes, but... um, I'm definitely nervous about that. So I guess if, if you're pro-privacy, you might want to keep uh, the, the Constitution Convention closed. Is that is that the idea? Yeah, I think if you're pro, you know, being able to make your own choices, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, okay. And so, and then the, the, I guess I have one final question, and that is, like, you know, you know, since the last 48 hours, I've been what I would call hopping mad. Uh, that, that's that's about the most mad I can get. Uh, and I, I just, like, you know, I'm trying to help as best as I, as I, I can. And, and, of course, like, I'm just I'm trying to get in line with what, what the leaders of, today reproductive rights movement are doing, including Planned Parenthood. And, like, you know, I, I want to know, like, how, how can we help? How can we be allies in this? Uh, and what can we do in order to... to to combat this. Yeah, thanks for asking. So I don't normally say this, but right now we are in a moment, like donate to Planned Parenthood, Um, donate to abortion funds. The Northwest Abortion Fund is an amazing organization. They already helped, like how I said, you know, like there's legal access, but if you don't live in an urban hub in Alaska, then you cannot get to an abortion provider. So they already have the network set up to help people with funds for travel for child care, you know, over 50% of people that access abortions already have children, um, you know, and, and need child care while they're traveling to access those abortions. Um, and then the next, you know, is volunteer with us, you know, like we need people um, on the ground helping, you know, we are very strategic, like, you know, very, you know, like, this is what I do all the time, you know, is trying to look forward to how, you know, can, you know, not just protect access, but expand it. Like that's what the conversation should be. Over 80% of people in Alaska support abortion access. Like there's no reason why we shouldn't have a state legislature and a governor that agree with that value. Um, you know, and then also like talk to people, like talk to your family and your community. And I know it's seen as hard and scary and taboo, But if you have an abortion story, if someone you love does ask if you can tell it on their behalf, you know, we have to change this narrative they've created that it's scary and wrong and shameful and nobody wants it to it's unique and individual for every single person. And the overwhelming majority of people do believe it should be someone's choice to make that decision with their body. Thanks. And, and Rose, if, they, if someone wants to volunteer, how do they go about uh, going through that, that process of, of, of telling Planned Parenthood they want to volunteer? Yeah. Um, so if you are on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, we're Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates West. Um, and you can message us on there and we will connect you directly to an organizer. Um, we have organizers in Fairbanks and Anchorage, and we just hired a rural organizer, which I'm very excited about. Um, and so, you know, you can Google us and email us. Uh, I can say my email, but it's very complicated. Uh, it's rose.oharajolly, with a hyphen between O'Hara and Jolly, at ppallianceadvocates.org. Um and we would just love to hear from you and get you connected. Uh, with your permission, I'll also put your email on the description of this podcast. Is that okay? Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Rose and Ashley, for uh, helping us understand what's going on right now. Um, and uh, I really appreciate you taking your time. Thank you.